Well, if you have your Bible, it turns me to John chapter 3. We continue to work our way through John's gospel. And uh, this morning we're going to be looking at verses uh, 31 through 36. I think I've shared with you before, uh, one of the things that Janine and I like to do is we like to go see a good, good movies. And we will occasionally on Fridays uh, go take advantage of the, the early bird discount and get there before noon and, and enjoy a good movie. But because of the busyness of life, you know how this works, it's not, we're not able to do that that often. So one of the things that I do before I go see a movie, and this always kind of bugs Janine, um, but I like to read what the critics say. I like to read reviews. And the reason I do this is not because I don't want to make up my own mind about the film, but it's because I don't want to really waste two hours if I can help it. You know, I've done this before, and I'm sure you've watched a movie, and you thought that was an absolute waste of time. For example, I'm never going to get back the two hours I spent with my daughters watching Alvin and the Chipmunks chipwrecked. You ever seen this? It's terrible. Now, it was better, I have to say, it was better than Alvin and the Chipmunks, the squeakquel. Um, is better than that. But still, either way, I'm not going to get that time back. And so what I do is I say, well, I want to look and see, again, kind of what the critics say. I want to read a few of the reviews. But one of the things I have noticed is with critics and, and people who review films is if a movie ends in a positive way, it has a, a, a favorable ending, it's almost always panned by the critics. And so a movie where the hero dies or the couple doesn't stay together or some tragedy strikes that is often viewed as sort of brilliant filmmaking. But if, if it has a happy ending or sort of things work out in the end, you know, it can't possibly be good art. I've noticed this about the critics, and I think perhaps this is for, I don't know, maybe legitimate reason, at least uh, partly, and that's because people realize that this is not the way it often works in the world, right? We don't see that many couples staying together. There's not often a great ending to the romance. Uh, heroes don't often ride off into the sunset. The good doesn't often triumph over evil, listen, at least in this broken world. And so what they say is it just can't really be like that. And so how could we say this movie is good? We live in a world that is filled with conflict. And at the very least, the very least, a world that is filled with tension. And you know what tension is. Tension is when you feel pulled in multiple directions or when something it seems like it's true, but then on the other hand, it's like, can it really be true? It seems like this is the way that it should be, but I'm not really sure this is the way that it actually is. And so because of tension, this sometimes unresolvable conflict causes pressure and consternation and even despair. And, and we know, those of us who, are, who, who have put our faith in Jesus, we know that the Christian life does not spell the end to our tension, does it? In fact, in many ways, tension is only magnified when you become a follower of Jesus. And the Scriptures are replete with examples of this tension. For example, we are set free from sin, Romans 6. Yet we continue to give in to sin, Romans 7. We are saints, 1 Corinthians 1. Yet we are sinners, 1 John 1. We have peace, Ephesians 2, and yet we continue to strive for peace, Colossians 3. We have been saved, Ephesians 1 and 2, yet we are to work out our salvation with fear and trembling, Philippians 2. 
We are beautiful, cherished, image bearers of God, Genesis 1, Genesis 9. And yet we are wretched people, Romans 7. We have been given rest, Matthew 11. And yet we are to labor to enter into that rest, Hebrews chapter 4. We are forgiven, Colossians 3, yet we continue to need to confess our sin, Matthew 6. So you see, there's all kinds of tension. And there's one, um, I didn't write this down, so I'm not going to get the reference uh, correctly, but it's, we know that we've seen from John chapter 3 that God so loved the world in all of its wickedness. God sent His Son to die for the world, and yet I believe it's Psalm, uh, the ninth Psalm, as I recall, it says that God hates the wicked. So what, what do we do with that? I mean, how do we make sense of this tension? Well, in this morning, uh, the passage we're in this morning, the tension, frankly, is, is pretty high. We're told that everybody's going to Jesus, but no one receives Jesus. So we say, well, what does that actually mean? Like, what, what are they doing then? How are they responding to him if they're going to him, but they're not receiving him? What is he saying to them? Everybody's going to Jesus, but no one's receiving him. We're also told um, that no one receives him except those who are born from above, but there's still an invitation that whoever does receive him is given eternal life. So again, there's tension there. We're told that only those to whom it has been given can actually believe. But everyone is invited to believe. So, tension throughout the text. Let's read it together, uh, or I'll read it from John chapter 3, verses 31 through 36. Here's the way the word of the Lord reads He who comes from above is above all. He who is of the earth belongs to the earth and speaks in an earthly way. He who comes from heaven is above all. He bears witness to what he has seen and heard. Yet no one receives his testimony. Whoever receives his testimony, there's tension right there. No one receives it, yet whoever receives it sets his seal to this that God is true. For he whom God has sent utters the words of God, for, the, for he gives the Spirit without measure. The Father loves the Son and has given all things into his hand. Whoever believes in the Son has eternal life. Whoever does not obey the Son shall not see life but the wrath of God remains on him. Now, just a quick reminder, there are two Johns that we kind of toggle back and forth between as we're working our way through the early chapters. There is John uh, the Evangelist, who's also John the disciple of Jesus. This is the one that Jesus loved. This is the one who walked with Jesus. This is the one who penned the gospel that we're reading. So I call him John the Evangelist. Not just I call him. A lot of people call him John the Evangelist. Because this book, the gospel, is written so that you may believe. So there's that John, the disciple of Jesus, John the Evangelist. There's also John the Baptist, who was the kind of cousin of Jesus, who was the, the first prophet to come along in 400 years, who's, who's pointing people to Jesus. So um, here we're reading the words of John the Evangelist, and he says, He who comes from above is above all. Now this is really a play on words that's meant to take us back to the conversation that Jesus had with Nicodemus. Remember what Jesus and Nicodemus, how that conversation went. Jesus says to Nicodemus that except a person is born from above, he cannot see the kingdom of God. And then he says, he says to, to Nicodemus, the wind blows wherever it wishes, and no one can say where it's been or where it's going. No one can say how the wind is working. You can only see 
the, uh, the results of it. And Nicodemus says, well, how can this be? And what does Jesus say? He says, if you don't understand earthly things, how can you understand heavenly things? Again, you're thinking in an earthly way. You're not thinking in a way that is from above. So this is a, it's meant to take us back to that conversation, earthly things versus things from above. It's the same language that John used again in the passage that I just read. See, unlike Nicodemus and unlike the religious leaders of the day who are from the earth and see things from an earthly perspective, the one who comes from above, namely Jesus Christ, sees things from a much higher, much loftier vantage point, sees things from a divine perspective. Because Jesus comes from above, he sees from above, and verse 32, he bears witness to what he has seen and experienced, seen and heard. That is, he's talking about things related to the Father, things related to the Father's character, things related to God's salvation. And the flip side of that is also true. Jesus says in verse 31, He who is of the earth belongs to the earth and speaks in an earthly way. So what in the, what in the world is the earthly way of speaking? What is the earthly way of seeing things, reasoning, and so on? Well, the earthly way that Jesus is alluding to is the way of salvation that is promoted by Nicodemus and his fellow religious leaders. And here's what it is. You want to be right with God, you better earn it. You want to be right with God, you better earn it. It's a, it's a meritocracy as you get what you deserve. And is anything more consistent with the earth's way of thinking, the earthly way of seeing things, than that? Here's our first point this morning as we're unpacking the difference between this earthly and, and wisdom from above. Earthly wisdom says... There's more you must do. True wisdom cries, it is finished. It is finished. Now, of course, I'm talking about salvation here. I'm talking about justification, how a person is made right with God. I'm not talking about this is the end of the Christian life. I mean, certainly there are things we are to do. We're to make disciples who make disciples, right? That's what we're committed to. There's a world that needs to be evangelized, to hear about Jesus. Uh, we, we fight sin, right? We, we, we spend our time praying to God for strength and help and healing. So I'm not saying as a Christian, sit back, you don't do anything. But as it relates to our salvation, our justification, the earthly wisdom says, you got to do more. Nicodemus, there's more I have to do. The religious leaders, there's more I must do. And Jesus says, no, you're thinking with an earthly perspective. You're looking at things from an earthly manner. True wisdom cries, it is finished. As we look around we see, and we don't have to look very far, to see everything in our world appears to be, everything good appears to be earned. From college entrance exams to Girl Scout awards to promotions at work, we're told you get what you can earn. I see it all the time in the church. I see it all the time in my own heart. At every level, we are uncomfortable with undeserved favor. We're uncomfortable with bad people getting good things. We're uncomfortable with grace. We, we, we naturally are so much more comfortable with earning. We say, you clean your room, you can go outside. You do your homework, you can watch TV. You eat your greens, you can have a dessert. You memorize your Bible verse, you get a patch. 
Does anything make more sense to us than that? I don't think it does. It just goes to the the nature of the human heart with the law written on our hearts. A person should get what he or she deserves. And certainly, though we would never admit it, we feel this way about salvation too. We are easily persuaded that salvation is for good people, those who work enough, those who do enough, those who serve enough, those who give enough. They're the ones who are deserving of salvation, which, of course, creates within us a relentless desire to show people that we are good enough and we have done enough. We can do this. I am a good person after all, we say. We're desperate for other people to see it, and we're desperate to believe it ourselves. We want so badly to think well of ourselves. In 1949, T.S. Eliot, who's one of America's best-known poets and written a variety of plays, he wrote a short play called The Cocktail Party, and it was actually it was his most successful play that he ever wrote. It ran for a little while in the early 1950s on Broadway and then ran a little bit later in London. And it tells the story of this this couple that's been married for for five years, Edward and Lavinia, and they're having this marital strife, and it's a bit, it's kind of part, it's part tragedy and part romance and part sort of existential dialogue. It's kind of a, it's an interesting play. And so Edward and Lavinia have been married five years, and, and Lavinia decides to leave her husband, Edward, right on the eve, the same day that they had this huge cocktail party planned. And they've invited people to this party for, for months. And so Lavinia leaves and Edward has to decide, like, okay, how am I going to explain to all these people that my wife is not here? What am I going to tell everybody about the fact that my wife is not here? And, and kind of as the play unfolds, and I'm not necessarily recommending it, there's some, some sketchy stuff in there, but Edward tries to figure this out and, and then... Uh, Lavinia, his wife, is brought back to the party by a mysterious, unidentified guest. And anyway, I won't tell you the rest of the play, but uh, T.S. Eliot writes this line, which I thought is so good. Half the harm that is done in this world is due to people who want to feel important. They don't mean to do harm, but the harm does not interest them, or they do not see it, or they justify it because they are absorbed in the endless struggle to think well of themselves. And isn't this the natural impulse of the human heart? I have to show everybody else and the world and God and myself, I have to show that I'm worthy of being respected. I'm worthy of being thought well of. I have to show people that I'm a good person. It's why we have such a hard time. It's why I have such a hard time admitting that I'm wrong. And I can come up with a thousand excuses and I can put a thousand asterisks and footnotes with any apology. Yeah, but if you, because we want so badly to think well of ourselves, the law which is written on our hearts makes us judges of everything and everybody. It's why the biggest, strongest man that I know said to me, whenever I go to bed at night, every single night, when I lay my head on the pillow, I think, have I done enough? Have I done enough so that God would be pleased with me? Now, no one says this again, but it shows up in the guilt that we experience. shows up in the shame that we hide. The actions we take, such great pains to make sure that nobody else 
knows about. You ever been in a small group that's supposed to be an accountability group? Right? And, and, and you end up praying for somebody's dog and somebody's knee. And so, nobody's actually saying anything. Nobody's actually sharing. That it, it, we try so hard to hide those things because we don't want to give up the pretense of perfection. And then along come Jesus, comes Jesus who five times in John chapter 3 says, here's what you must do. Believe in me. This is what you must do. Believe in me. Whoever believes in me. There's a reason that the gospel is called foolishness and a stench to the nostrils. Paul says, but we preach Christ, a stumbling block and folly to those, but to those who are called the wisdom of God. Why is it folly? What makes the gospel appear as foolish to so, to so many people? Because it is the announcement that salvation is for the undeserving. Not the deserving. There's no one deserving. Salvation is for the undeserving. Forgiveness is free to us. It can't be earned. Now think about how this would have hit Nicodemus. Think about how this would have rankled the feathers of the religious leaders who'd come to investigate Jesus and his teaching. Think about how this would have angered the teachers of the law. And in fact, it did. What does John tell us? No one received him. Jesus says, believe on me, and no one received him. No one could stand it. No one could stomach what Jesus was saying. But the message of Christianity is not God helps those who help themselves. Nor is it with God's help you can do this. Nor is it even God is ready to meet you halfway. None of those, frankly, would be the least bit comforting to me. I just ordered a book from uh, an author that I've been tracking the last year. wrote a book that just came out last week and it's called Life is Impossible, and that's good news. And this is the reality. I haven't started the book, so I, I can't vouch for it yet, but this is, I love the title, Life is Impossible, and that's good news. The message of Christianity, the gospel, is the announcement that in Christ, God has come to save us. He enters into our sadness and our brokenness and our hopelessness and our helplessness, and He goes all the way down to meet us. And then enables us to see by His grace who He really is. As He explained to Nicodemus, John says, or Jesus says, that the Spirit grants spiritual life to those who are spiritually dead. And God simply asks us to believe. Now what are we believing? Look at verse 33. Whoever receives His testimony sets His seal to this, that God is true. You ever seen a, a picture of a, a Super Bowl ring? You know, I guess if you're a Tennessee Titan fan, it's you know, it's just sort of out, you never have you, you'll never see anybody wear one of these. But <laughs> if you uh, <laughs> that's for my friend Brandon. Um, but if you if you've ever seen a Super Bowl ring, right? You see that they're just studded with all kinds of diamonds, just this unbelievable you know uh, piece of jewelry. Well. They didn't have Super Bowl, uh, Super Bowl rings, obviously, uh, back in Jesus' day, but they did have, have what was called signet rings. And uh, let, let me show you a picture of a signet ring. Um, pretty fascinating. What happened was, back in ancient Jewish culture, men didn't wear a lot of jewelry. Um, you know, there's not a lot of bling going on, but, but they did wear men who were particularly wealthy or, or those who were uh, well-known in the community sometimes wore a signet ring. 
And what, ha- what would happen is these rings would be etched with a family seal. And when the person wearing the ring would, would put that seal into either hot wax or soft clay, it would leave a mark, and then that mark then would, would solidify. And that was actually more binding than a signature. And when a person offered their seal, they were vouching for another person's claim. What they're saying is, like, I, you can believe this person. You, you can trust what this person says. This person is trustworthy. And the person who offered the seal then actually put himself or herself at risk, it was almost always himself, put himself at risk by vouching for this other person. So when John says, whoever believes sets his seal to this, that God is true, he's saying, as to the question, can God be trusted? As to the question, is God real? As to the question, is God's salvation sufficient? I'm staking everything I have on it. I'm setting my seal to it. I'm banking on it. Here's the second point. To believe means to bank everything we have on the fully sufficient life and cross work of Jesus. It's saying, look, I'm putting all my eggs in this basket. I know that I can't do it. I know I can't save myself. I know I can't earn it. I know there's nothing that I can present to God that I can slide to the middle of the table by which God would say, okay, that's sufficient. I'm actually believing in the fully sufficient life and the cross work of Jesus. Those who believe aren't simply saying, yeah, I I believe this person exists. Or they're not even saying in our context, I believe there's a God, I believe in Jesus. They're saying, I'm banking everything I have on God's faithfulness, His truth in the Messiah, Jesus Christ. And again, banking everything we have on God's faithfulness necessarily includes confessing our own faithlessness. He is faithful, but I'm not. His work was perfect. His life was perfect. He he actively and passively obeyed God and satisfied the requirements of the law. I, on the other hand, violate the law at every turn. We're called to believe. And not just have a general good feeling about God or believe that He exists. He calls us to put aside every other thing we might be inclined to trust in or rest in and believe that God is faithful and He has revealed Himself to us through His Son. For the Son, verse 34, utters the very words of God. The Son, verse 34b, has been given the Spirit in full measure. And verse 35, the Father loves the Son and has given everything to Him. I love that phrase so much. I've made the point over the past two weeks and really 19 years of ministry I've made the point that what really stirs the heart, and I believe this comes, I believe wholeheartedly, and I believe I can demonstrate how this comes from the Scriptures, that what motivates a person to love is love. What moves a person to obey is the reality that we've been loved. We see this over and over in Scripture. And then I read this, and and as I'm studying this week, I had to ask myself the question, could it be that, that even for Jesus, it was the love of the Father that compelled him to leave heaven and earth, to come to the earth, to surrender his own life for his enemies. I think it was. And plenty of others agree. One well-known theologian explains it this way. 
All the Gospels bear witness to this deep love that the Father has for the Son. The knowledge of His Father's love for Him may help to explain with the accompanying gift of the Holy Spirit the almost inexplicable life and work of Jesus of Nazareth. Could it be that even Jesus in His humanity yearned to hear that simple parental phrase that expresses the deepest longings of all sons and daughters. I love you, and I'm pleased with you. I absolutely believe it. In fact, I think this explains why at Jesus' baptism, before Jesus had done anything, He hadn't done anything in terms of His ministry. What do we see? The Father breaking through heaven, saying in front of everybody, this is my beloved Son in whom I am well pleased. Listen to Him. I absolutely believe that what moved Jesus, at least in part, to go leave the beautiful confines of heaven, the right hand of the Father, and come to a broken, sinful earth was the love of the Father bestowed upon Him. Now, there's so much that we can learn from this as parents. There's so much we can learn as pastors, so much we can learn as neighbors. And we're going to continue to look at the implications of this over the next weeks and months and years. It's such a beautiful reality. But I want to look at, uh, look at verse 36. Whoever, this is, this is an interesting distinction here. Whoever believes in the Son, whoever believes in the Son, has eternal life. Whoever does not obey the Son shall not see life, but the wrath of God remains on him. Whoever believes in the Son has eternal life. The one who puts his or her faith in Jesus, in, in the words of John, sets his seal on this, the trustworthiness of God, the reality of God's salvation in Christ, is granted eternal life. Those people will never experience spiritual death. They are given peace with God right now. And their hope for the future is well-founded. I had the, the beautiful occasion, which I never expected, but it was a blessing from the Lord, to develop a, a, a cherished friendship with a man at a previous church, the last church I served, who was 83 years old. I had no idea how much I would love to come to love this man. Um, his name was Glenn. He was a pastor for decades and decades. He was a man who just grace just poured out of him. And I, I went to see Glenn and his wife Amy as, as Glenn was dying of cancer. And I sat with him. He was really, he was only literally moments away from dying. He would die that same evening. And I sat there with him, and cancer had reduced this once strong man and paragon of resolve to a walker-dependent, nearly immobile sufferer. And I put my arm around him to pray with him. And his body was so frail, and he was so thin and weak, I could feel the outline of his ribs. It was so heartbreaking. And as I sat there and I, and I prepared to pray for him, I listened to Glenn's wife share these precious stories of her husband's, his graciousness and his quiet strength. For example, it grieved Glenn so deeply to discipline his kids. He had such a huge heart. They would often wait until his wife Amy had left the room and then loudly spank the couch instead of his children so to satisfy his, his wife's you know, very fair longing for justice. He just couldn't bring himself. He, was so, he had such a huge heart 
And I'm sitting there, and I'm not saying if you discipline your kids, you have a small heart. I discipline my kids, and I hope that I have a big heart for them. But this man, just, just grace just poured out of him. And I sat there with him with my arm around him. And, his, and Amy said, will you read to us a portion from Psalm 121? And so I, I turned to the Scriptures, and I read this. I lift my eyes to the hills. From where does my help come? My help comes from the Lord who made heaven and earth. There's no greater comfort for the Christian than in knowing that the one who created all things, who preserves all things, will keep his own for all eternity. He will hold us fast. When our faith is weak, when our affections uh, wane, when we look to other things for satisfaction and pleasure, he will hold us fast. He will hold us until we are with him again, where God dwells, where his people And it's a place where there will be no cancer, and there will be no arthritis, and there will be no crying. There won't even be tear ducts, because no one ever cries. Crying will be a thing of the past. This is the eternal life that awaits those who believe. But I want you to notice something very interesting here. Typically, believing is contrasted with what? Not believing. For example, we saw, as we saw earlier in verse 18 of the same chapter, whoever believes is not condemned, but whoever does not believe is condemned already. Again, normally it's whoever believes over and against or contrasted with whoever does not believe. But that's not what John says here. He says, whoever believes has eternal life, but whoever does not obey the Son shall not see life. Now, this is where a preacher can make a lot of hay by saying that what John is talking about here is that those who believe will necessarily demonstrate their belief, their faith in obedience. Now, please hear me. That's absolutely true. That's absolutely true. When God gets a hold of a person's heart, He makes them alive, He brings them to repentance and faith. It changes the way that we live. It changes what we love. It changes how we think. It changes what we we believe. So absolutely, those who believe, who truly believe, who have regenerate hearts, live a certain way. And that's not only true, it's also important, especially important in our cultural context, isn't it? Everybody I talk to says, yeah, I'm a Christian. And yet, as far as I know, In many cases, I don't see any love for God, any love for His bride, the church, any commitment to the kingdom purposes of God. So yes, a person who believes will demonstrate the reality of that belief through obedience. That's all true. But that's not what John's talking about here. The disobedience that John is talking about is very specifically this, not receiving the Son. That's what he's talking about. The verb for obey here assumes that a person has been addressed and been, had been invited to receive Christ as he's revealed himself to be and has rejected that invitation, has rejected, willfully rejected the person of Jesus. The single condemning act of disobedience that John is making reference to here is rejecting the Son, the Father's gift to the world. And, you know, we have, we have our own sort of pet list of sins, don't we? We have the sins that we don't struggle with that we look at as the worst sins imaginable. So we have this long list of things and these sins, and we think, now these are sins that are beyond the grace of God. Now, we, of course, we don't ever say that, but we think, now these are the really, really bad sins. And yet, the overall witness of Scripture is that there is no sin 
There is no action, there is no thought, there is no statement, no sin that is beyond God's scope of forgiveness. God's grace is infinitely greater and wider and more sufficient than anything we ever imagined and far sufficient enough to save even the most heinous of sins. The Apostle Paul, a terrific example, he was a blasphemer, a persecutor, an insolent opponent of Jesus and the way, and yet he received mercy as God brought him to repentance and faith in Jesus. So God's grace is powerful enough to cover every sin, but the ultimate act of defiance, the ultimate sin, which will necessarily lead to eternal condemnation, is rejecting Jesus, unbelief, that the act of disobedience that renders one eternally guilty before God. And here's why. This is our final point. Jesus came not pleading for acceptance, but proclaiming unto submission. You know, sometimes we think of Jesus kind of like a needy boyfriend, you know. We please, 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 please just accept me. Will you, will you please just let me in? Will you please just come to me? Will you please just believe in me? What example did John the Baptist use in last week's passage that we looked at last week? Jesus is the groom to whom the bride runs and on whom the bride depends. And he's not only a bride, he is a king. So this is what I meant when I gave the sermon the title, A Beautiful Tension, right? The beauty of tension. Jesus is gentle and meek and compassionate, inviting, pleading with sinners to come. But he's also overflowing with power and glory, one from whom the demons flee and the darkness hides, the one who created the heavens and earth and currently reigns over them. Softly and tenderly, Jesus is calling, yes, praise God for that. But he's also commanding all people everywhere to repent. That's where the tension lies. And those who refuse to believe remain under the wrath of a holy God. Now we talk about the wrath of God. We're talking about one of the most terrifying realities in the world. The wrath of God is not some impersonal force like you might see in a horror movie that kind of you know, uh, wreaks havoc on people. The wrath of God is God's very personal and holy response to the world which He created that's fallen into rebellion. A world in which, frankly, according to Jesus, there are very few who really want anything to do with this God. There are very few who want to receive His gracious offer of forgiveness. This is not some frustration on God's part because things haven't gone His way. This is, not even, this is not even God's frustration with people who have a hard time believing, who wrestle earnestly. This is God's holy response to those who have willfully and consciously rejected His invitation. In fact, they've rejected His order to trust in Him. Perhaps the best-known sermon ever preached in America, uh, outside of the sermons in the Bible, sometimes people will preach, you know, just read the text as a sermon, but... Uh, perhaps the best-known sermon ever preached in the Bible was Jonathan Edwards' Sinners in the Hands of an Angry God. 
And in fact, even public high schools, even actually in California, there were public high schools who were reading this uh, because of the, the sort of the, the tautness of the literature and so on. It was preached by Edwards on July 8, uh, 1742 in Northampton, Massachusetts. Uh, the text from that sermon was, was actually Amos 9, 3, uh, 2 and 3, God's promise to uh, rebellious Israel, if they dig into Sheol, from there my hand shall take them. If they climb up to heaven, from there I will bring them down. So that was the primary sort of text in focus. But, but actually Jonathan Edwards borrowed as well from John chapter 3, what we're in, and in particular this phrase that I just read, those who don't believe are condemned already. And he said this about God's judgment on those who disobey Him by rejecting the offer of salvation. The wrath of God burns against them. Their damnation doesn't slumber. The pit is prepared. The fire is made ready. The furnace is now hot, ready to receive them. The flames do now rage and glow. The glittering sword is wet and held over them, and the pit hath opened up her mouth under them. The devil stands ready to fall upon them and seize them as his own, at what moment God shall permit him. The wrath of God. Who wants to talk? I don't want to talk about this. The wrath of God is a real and terrifying thing. And the wrath of God is reserved for those who reject the Son, those who spurn the legitimate, the gracious, bona fide offer of forgiveness. The wrath of God just shows us how unchangeable the character of God is, and it shows us how much God really, really wants His Son to be trusted. The wrath of God will finally be poured out on all those who reject Jesus, and even now, it rests on those who are spurning and have spurned the invitation to believe. But I want to end with this. The Bible, notice the Bible doesn't say God is wrath. But the Bible does say God is love. The wrath of God is part of His perfection, His character. But His very essence is love. And because of that love, He offers every person a chance to repent and believe. There's an invitation to all who would receive it. Believe. Whoever believes, Jesus says. So here's some very good news for you this morning and for me. If you are alive, which I'm assuming you are if you're sitting there, if you are alive, you have an opportunity this morning to end your rebellion an opportunity to repent of your sins and believe on Jesus. You say, I've been in church my whole life. I don't care. That's not what matters. I'm glad you have been. But what Jesus is saying is it's not about going to church. It's not about giving a certain dollar amount. It's not about behaving a certain way. It's about believing, coming to the end of your rebellion, coming to the recognition that, the God, that God so loved the world that He sent His Son, not just for a generic world, but for my sin and your sin. And you have an opportunity this morning to come to Him. You do not want to play around with. We do not want to flirt around with the wrath of God, the devastating wrath of God.
Now, I don't, you know, because I've said it before, I don't believe in long, drawn-out invitations. I don't believe that the Spirit can be manipulated. I don't believe by singing a song 19 times, whatever it is, that, that something, but I do believe that every proclamation from God, with, with every proclamation of God, there's a call to respond. And so what I want to say this morning is, if you haven't responded in faith, the Spirit of God may be dealing with you even this morning. Maybe bringing you to a place of repentance and brokenness and faith. And if you haven't responded, I would love to talk with you. Pastor Adam would love to talk with you. Todd and Jeannie DeWitt would love, whoever's up front would love to talk with you and share with you the beauty of the gospel. Let me just ask this, for the sake of those who may be here that the Spirit's dealing with. If you normally come up at the end of the service and you say hi to someone up front, maybe a person who's in the, the band or someone standing, just refrain on this Sunday. And we, we, we believe the Spirit can do whatever He wants to do, but in, in light of this discussion on the wrath of God and the free offer of forgiveness to whoever believes, let's, let's just... Keep the front ready. And maybe nobody comes forward. I'm not going to be hurt if that happens. God does what He wants to do. But maybe there's a 16-year-old. Maybe there's a 78-year-old. Maybe there's a 50-year-old that's come and is part of church and been part of this body and been part of this church, for, but never really come to saving faith. May God be the day of salvation for someone. Let's pray.